did I not see this coming? Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year Polygamy Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and we are doing uh, part two of a series on temples. I'm actually going to bring some fundamentalists on too, and they're going to talk about their temples in hopefully the next episode or two. So I have a returning panel of guests who were just on part one. So if you are just tuning into this episode, you really need to go back and listen to part one so you can sort of have the context of what we're talking about. But let's go around the room and introduce ourselves. Christina Rosetti, can you say hello? Hello. Who are you and why are you here? I don't, I wonder that every day, Lindsay. No, um, I'm a doctoral candidate at, um, in religious studies and I study Mormonism and so different kinds of Mormons and Mormon fundamentalists included who have very strong opinions on the temple. Also back for another episode is Cynthia Bailey Lee. Cynthia, can you tell us who you are and why you're on the episode? So I um, blog about Mormon issues at By Common Consent blog, and by day I am a computer scientist. So and we'll link to you've just recently blogged about the recent temple changes, and so we'll link to that blog post as well. And then uh, we really couldn't have this episode without including Devery Anderson. I know a lot of people said they didn't want to hear from men on this topic, but I mean Devery Anderson is like the foremost historian on the. temple development and changes in the temple. So Devery Anderson, thanks for coming on to the podcast again. Oh, happy to be here. So uh, Devery, will you just like plug your book really quick out the gate and we'll make sure we link to it. But it's kind of the reading guide for this podcast. My favorite of these three on on temple worship is one called The Development of LDS Temple Worship, which chronicles from 1846 to 2000 based on uh, documents that talk about the temple and change and changes to be anticipated and all that type of thing covers a hundred and almost around 150 years of history that really tells a I think a very fascinating story about the role of the temple and the fact that it has been changed and it's evolved it's changed it's kind of all of the above over the years and that's important to confront and talk about I think you can't understand really the temple fully without acknowledging that past and and looking at the whys behind it. I think it's very important. So in part one, we sort of talked a little bit about the early days of the endowment and masonry. But let's let's get into sort of the history of this. I, I asked you in the part one, why why the endowment? Why do we need this? But it really is, I want to dive into how it's tied to polygamy, because that's something that comes up a lot. And I want to talk about the garment and why that was considered a thing. So let's just dive into this. Um, bring us back. Well, first of all, I I think maybe people don't know that like the Kirtland Temple is really different than the Nauvoo Temple. Do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah, the Kirtland Endowment uh, and the, and the looking at the temple itself, it wasn't even built as a temple. It was known as the House of the Lord, and it was for public meetings and that. But they did Smith did establish washings and anointings there perfuming of the body as part of a ceremony that was given to people, leaders of the church and people prior to going on missions and that. And so it was it was really the prelude to Nauvoo. And that was established in 1836. So between 1836 and 1842, there wasn't really anything beyond that. After Kirtland, there wasn't really anything performed until, again, until Joseph Smith established the endowment ceremony 
above the red brick store in May of 1842. What was the understanding of the time? What? How would it was still pretty secretive. So, is it fair to say that these uh, rituals were not known to some of the general membership at the time? They weren't. And are we referring to the Nauvoo Endowment now? Oh, sorry. Am I going out of history? Yeah, I, I just mean in in Kirtland. They build a temple. What did they think that they were building the temple for? It's really a public meeting house, just the architecture in there. There were several, and, and it still stands today with that architecture intact. But there were meeting, there were uh, assembly or halls with pulpits built to suggest priesthood hierarchy and priesthood office and that. There were the pulpits and there were the, the seats built like a chapel, one on the main floor and in the second floor. And there were offices and classrooms and that, but it was always meant to be a public meeting house. And that's what it was used for. The washings and anointings that were established were, were not even the dominant part of, of, the, of the building. It was just used occasionally for that. And within a few years after 1836, the church had moved on and left the temple behind. And so washings and anointings were just a ceremony conducted in there and, and they were even conducted outside of the temple was uh, that when they were doing the cinnamon whiskey days like the john c bennett they were all naked taking baths with cinnamon whiskey that would have <laughs> that would have been later in nauvoo when uh that was those stories emerged i believe so there's one story of oliver cowdery talking about getting bathed in cinnamon whiskey and then he says oh and david whitmer was there too <laughs> so that would have been yeah i guess uh Neither one were in Nauvoo, so that would have been Kirtland because Missouri didn't have anything like that. So I will say the the one thing I didn't understand about Kirtland until you know Sunstone goes there every year. We have a conference, and last year we did one on the temples. I didn't realize that the Kirtland Temple, the saints were still believing in the the Trinity at the time. They they saw the Godhead as a Trinity. Is that accurate? Well, I know uh, Tom Alexander has a great article in Sunstone. One of my favorite articles from Sunstone was his on, what was it called? Anyway, it was just how the doctrine of the Godhead changed over the years. And in Kirtland, I believe it was still Trinitarian for the most part. Um, But it was during that time after 1835, I believe, when it started shifting some. But I'm not sure how much it evolved to what we have now while while it was while the church was still in Kirtland, but there definitely was that. And Tom Alexander really wrote Reconstruction of Mormon Doctrine is what it was called, published in Sunstone in the eighties and reprinted in some of the best of issues. I'd check it out. <laughs> well, and Kirtland Temple's really cool because there's like veils that they would drop and they would like quarter off the room and they would do different meetings and different things. But it really Yeah, it was the- a way to divide up the the room for to hold more than one meeting it's not really the same as the as the veil and like the current lds temple right that comes down later on right it was just a way to create temporary classrooms in the chapel area okay well so kirtland was more of as the church was developing their own theology as joseph smith was working that out it wasn't sort of crystallize would you say it's fair that in the nauvoo temple that's when we really have something that is similar to I, I guess more recognizable than what we have now because the story that I've heard from like John Hamer is that the Cutlerites have the original endowment um, ceremony and nobody can get their hands on it. Is that they make people wait for like ten years to get their endowment. Yeah, well because they've had people something try to about convert. the cinnamon whiskey. Uh, yeah, go back to cinnamon whiskey I, yes. and then I want to talk only, about this. Only because I think people are going to hear that. And it sounds scandalous to say the saints were bathing in cinnamon whiskey, but it's 100% not as scandalous as it sounds. 
alcohol, all of the 19th century was used for cleansing. People used whiskey for medicinal purposes. There's great stories of Zina Young feeding male saints a pint of cinnamon whiskey to help with urination problems. And there was like a deer penis in the cinnamon, in the whiskey that she was giving them. Um, but cinnamon was used in the book of Exodus to anoint uh, the priesthood. And so kind of combining those to cleanse people spiritually and physically, cinnamon was used. And then there's a great article in Dialogue about the Kirtland Temple that talks about how cinnamon, how whiskey and cinnamon together, cinnamon's really hot, whiskey's cold when it goes on your body. And so taken together, it creates this sensation that's hot and cold at the same time. And they likened it to feeling the spirit. So I, I just want to point out that you that you just tried to normalize cinnamon whiskey. You're like, it's it's normal. And then you brought deer penis into I the conversation. I just want to say my favorite thing, my favorite tweet that BCC ever did is I tweeted about cinnamon whiskey and they came out strong with hashtag fireball saints. And it was one of the best things that BCC has ever done on Twitter. Agreed. Oh my gosh. How did I I miss that? I was just explaining the time when Mormons drank fireball. It's uh, a fact. When I went with the BCC crew to we were staying in Nauvoo and we went out to Carthage jail and they have the visitor center sort of a recreation of the, um, the kitchen, just sort of the open space of the home that, you know, the jails in the basement, of course. And on the kitchen table was a sort of serving bowl size bowl full of cinnamon sticks. Like there must've been, 100, 200 cinnamon sticks in this thing. And of course, one of our historians piped up and said, this seems really a historical cinnamon would have been very expensive. Uh, so that's what I remembered about that institute. But now it has this whole new meaning. Yeah, cinnamon cinnamon <laughs> has been used forever to like lower blood pressure, to lower blood sugar. Um, it is antiseptic, it's antibacterial. So covering someone in cinnamon whiskey would have been highly antiseptic. And if you're thinking about cleansing people before doing a ritual, um, this is a time when people showered once every few months. So these people are gross. Like we have to remember that the saints weren't clean people because they weren't bathing. It was the 19th century. And so they didn't smell good. And so cinnamon would have covered up odor. It just, it made a lot of sense. That's all I'm trying to say. Uh, I just want to give you a fun fact that if you live on the Wasatch Front, you can actually purchase Orin Porter Rockwell cinnamon whiskey at your local liquor store. So, yes, you can. Um, if you're and wanting to do these in your own home, we have plenty of listeners that do their own rituals in their living room. I would suggest Orin Porter Rockwell's Fireball Whiskey. So, and, and the bathtubs for the cinnamon whiskey are still in the basement of the Salt Lake Temple. So maybe we can get like an auction situation. It'll be great. So, Devery, that actually is a good segue because I, I do want to talk about the original endowment ceremony. And I want to talk about John C. Bennett because he wrote an expose and he made some pretty wild claims. Do you want to talk about those and, and speak to what, which ones were true and which ones we have no evidence of? Okay. Well, John Bennett um, wasn't an insider with the endowment, so he would have had to have heard about it from others. And so that would have made it a little Hard, and I'm not sure how many people by the time he wrote his book had actually written exposés. I know there were a couple of Nauvoo uh, exposés: Catherine Lewis and someone named Emmeline. At least that was a pen name or something. And those came out within a within a while. But it, Bennett's book came out in '42. I think it was in the fall, 
which is just about six months after the endowment began. And I'm not sure who was exposing it at that point to have given him any information. So I don't, I wouldn't put too much stock into him for that reason. I just don't think he had real access. And if he did, and even the people who did exposés like uh, the Van Dusen's increase in, and uh, Maria Van Dusen mm-hmm. and, and even Catherine Lewis also say, you know, there are these rumors. I know she does. Says there are these rumors that people get naked and, and are in the men are naked with women in the same room, this and that. She said, none of that is true. So, and she was writing as a, as a, you know, someone who was, you know, set to expose and embarrass uh, Mormons over this ritual. And so she denied that. So I don't think Bennett, um, if he's saying things like that, would have. So in, in the history really of the saints, source. I've got the history of the saints right here. I'm just looking at a, a chapter. This is, this is from Bennett's history of the saints um, where he's talking about covenants. He says, quote, I will now go back for a short period. In 1836, an endowment meeting or solemn assembly was called to be held in the temple at Kirtland. It was given out that those who were in attendance at the meeting should receive an endowment or blessing similar to that experienced by the disciples of Christ on the day of the Pentecost. When the day arrived, great numbers convened from the different churches in the country. They spent all the day fasting and prayer, and in washing and perfuming their bodies, they also washed their feet and anointed their heads with what they called holy oil and pronounced blessings. In the evening, they met for the endowment. The fast was unbroken by eating light wheat bread and drinking as much wine as they saw proper. Smith knew well how to infuse the spirit which they expected to receive, so he encouraged the brethren to drink freely, telling them that the wine was consecrated and would not make them drunk. As may be supposed, they drink to the purpose. After this, they began to prophesy, pronouncing blessings upon their friends and curses upon their enemies. If I should be so unhappy as to go to the regions of the dam, I never expect to hear the language more awful or more becoming the infernal pit that was then was uttered that night. The curses were pronounced principally upon the clergy of the present day and upon the Jackson County mobs in Missouri. After spending the night in alternate blessings and cursings, the meeting adjourned. And I actually, I actually believe something similar to that happened, but you know, this is kind of not really taken seriously, but we've talked about this at Sunstone. I think that there was an article, I think it was a dialogue article on the idea in Kirtland, Joseph Smith was um, infusing wine with possibly psychotropic or psychedelic uh, things like mushrooms because his mom was a root doctor, you know, she knew, um, the different medicines of the time and she used roots and herbs and Joseph Smith would have had access to that. So some, there's an actual theory, a scholarly theory. I know it sounds kind of wild, but a scholar did attempt this. And I think it's dialogue or sunstone where they wrote that perhaps, you know, the Pentecostal experiences in the Kirtland temple can be explained because Joseph Smith was in control of making the wine at that time. And they would, we talked about this in the history of the word of wisdom podcast. They would eat big chunks of bread and big glasses of wine when they were doing these things. And you can imagine pairing that wine with a spiritual experience would be kind of an interesting thing. Um, yeah. yeah. And again, I've, I've heard something about people saying that, you know, that there were, there were, there was others that talked about that at the time that they thought, you know, some, I don't know if they were outside observers or what thought that the people were, were drunk and that's why they were getting these experiences. And, and Bennett could very well, since he, that was prior to his Mormon experience, he would have heard that from someone and but I've heard that others that there are some others that uh, who are at least observing were saying that that's what they saw too. So there could be very well something to that. Well, I think that's interesting that other people were saying this and thinking that the saints were drunk because to contextualize it, that's exactly what was thought 
at Pentecost when, you know, in the book of Acts, when the fire came down and they all started speaking in tongues and all the outsiders were like the saints, the apostles are drunk um, because they were speaking in unknown languages. Uh, And Kirtland was referred to as a Pentecost moment. And so, I mean, granted, there was wine in both scenarios, but I think that's worth kind of considering that well, there's an Kirtland, interesting parallel. I mean, there are stories. This is documented. Stories of mm-hmm. drunkenness in the temple. You know, there was a fist fight that broke really? out. The Kirtland temple days were insane. Like, they're pulling sabers off the wall and threatening people. And someone yeah. jumps on the pulpit and starts speaking in tongues. And Joseph, uh, uh, William Smith threatens to punch Joseph at the pulpit. I mean, t- to me, that's when the temple would be really fun. Like, those those are the good old days. But uh, they're also, you know, someone uh, at a Sunstone presentation matched up a psychedelic experience, which is about six hours, which matches up the experiences in Kirtland where, you know, people are seeing enchanted steamboats flying over the temple and things like that. They match up. So it's it's a compelling theory. I don't know how much – I don't think it's something we could ever know, but it's certainly interesting. Just uh, give me that old-time religion, Lindsay. <laughs> that right. old-time just... Kirtland religion. For the record, I you know, Tom Kimball, who is um, – the groundskeeper for the community of Christ at the Kirtland temple. And he is um, a Brighamite descends from the, yes, the Kimballs. He puts absolutely zero stock in that theory. Cause I'm like, come on, Tom, like, tell me about this. Cause you know, he gave me a, a tour of the temple and we saw sort of the secret passages. And I was like, wait a minute, there's secret passages here. What's going on? And he was like, no, 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 no. It's not like that at all. Okay. So Devery move us to Nauvoo. That's really where the modern endowment goes. But can you speak to this original endowment that the Cutlerite group is supposed to be very territorial of and they're holding on to? Well, if they have anything, I've I've not heard that. And the thing about the Nauvoo endowment is that it was, it it wasn't known to have been written down. So it's possible that someone who went through just from memory tried to uh, put some text together, which but would have it would have been very hard to do. And and that was part of the problem that um, I think Joseph Smith, when he told this quote that I from Joseph Smith to Brigham Young, and again this is Brigham Young's uh, recollection, like forty years later, thirty years later. But he said, Joseph said, uh, brother, or this is Brigham Young speaking. Brother Joseph Smith turned to me, Brigham Young, and said, Brother Brigham, this is not arranged right, but we have done the best we could under the circumstances in which we were placed. And I wish, and I wish you to take the matter in hand and organize and systematize all these ceremonies with the signs, tokens, penalties, and keywords. And then um, he felt it was his assignment then to uh, standardize it and get it written, which wasn't, which was done in, in 1877. Prior to that, it wasn't known to be, and people only went through once. There were no endowments for the dead. And so you went through once, that was the only time you were endowed until the St. George Temple came along. That was just, that was Brigham Young considered that his job to standardize things, to get it written for the first time. So what, can, a, I, any, can I just co- say one thing on that really quick? So uh, a popular theory in groups now, like the Snufferite group, is that Brigham Young, it was convenient that he would say things years later, like in the 1870s when this quote came from, like, oh, well, actually, Brother Joseph told me in a private meeting that we had all of this wrong, so Brigham could change it. And that's, and that you know, that's a possibility. One of the things we know he did from the time when Joseph Smith introduced the endowment, of course, it was done outside the temple in the red brick store and over a th- couple year period there were like 65 people who were endowed and they were known as the quorum of the anointed they were endowed and they met regularly for prayer circles and for other business but um after joseph smith died and brigham young resumed the endowment in the temple 
one of the first things he did in December of 46 was add the characters of Peter, James, and John to the ceremony so that they weren't part of it prior to that. So he did make changes. And if he, you know, it's possible that down the road, he justified it, but uh, because nothing was written, at least that we know of. Um, and I think had it been written, there would have been, and I couldn't, can't imagine that wouldn't have survived uh, in some form uh, and been known to those who worked in the temple or who worked who were officiating in the endowment ceremony in the red brick store that would have saved a lot of time. And I think uh, would have been to their benefit to have had that written at the time. And that would have survived into the, into the Nauvoo temple. There were others besides Brigham Young. There was, I, I compile a list of all the actors in the temple uh, who played the various roles of Peter, James, John, or the serpent, which would have been a role that would have been in the, uh, earliest Nauvoo endowment above the red brick store and all of that. And I think there's enough evidence that the text varied. And it was one of those things where they had the the crux of the thing, which was the signs and tokens and the covenants, the rest of the wording. And I'm sure they used the Bible probably for the creation account. They, that was already written. And so they would have just used uh, existing scripture. But beyond that, there's just no evidence that they had that standardized or that it was the same each time it was given. Now, granted, there weren't a lot of people who received the endowment between 1842 and 1845. There were just 65 people who did. And there aren't any exposés of Joseph Smith's period. And so we don't, we can't really compare it to the exposés starting in the Nauvoo Temple. Just no evidence. And he, Joseph never even talked about where he got it from. It just suddenly appears. It just suddenly, the endowment, he just starts revealing it with no discussion that he received this by revelation, no discussion of any text. And usually something like that, he would have had a whole document drawn up in some form of that he received this from God. And there's just nothing like that. So there's, there's no evidence that it was written. But I also wouldn't put it past Brigham Young to either, not sure if he would make it up out of whole cloth, but something Joseph Smith may have told him in 1844. And then he elaborates and turns it into something bigger by 1877. That wouldn't surprise me a bit. We just... You know, we just don't know. All we know is that a committee was formed uh, with Wilfred Woodruff and Brigham Young Jr. and L. John Nuttall to finally standardize this by 1877. At that point, it was really important, too, because for the first time with with the St. George Temple, we have a temple outside. I mean, we had the endowment house and the council house uh, in Salt Lake City, which the church president could oversee the goings on there. But now we have a temple in St. George outside of church headquarters. And then others being built at the time in Manti and Logan. And within a few years, we had four existing temples, something we'd never known prior to that. And each temple president was is going to have some, and for the first time, we have temple presidents. And so even though they're given some f- amount of autonomy, which you couldn't help but have back then because communication, there weren't telephones. So you were outside of church headquarters. You weren't going to, unauthorized innovations could have easily crept in. So by 1877 to, you know, the early 18, over that next decade, had they not standardized that, each temple would have been doing something different, and they knew that. And so the text to be written at that point was vital, but prior to that, it wasn't that big of an issue. And I don't think it existed in written form prior to the 1870s. Let's dig into the polygamy connection for a moment, because of course, I I am one that believes that the temple endowment was very tied to polygamy because of Emma Smith. Anyone that knows the history of Emma Smith knows that basically she was promised her endowment and her role as queen and priestess in which is, you know, temple language 
if she accepted polygamy. It's all tied into DNC 132. So should we dive into that part of it right now, Devery? Sure. And I think it's, um, I think that's where the second anointing comes in too, because uh, it looks like her timing with, you know, those moments where she acquiesced and uh, okay, Joseph marrying other women, even though it was temporary, looks like once part of that was that brief acceptance, what followed almost immediately was uh, her being sealed to Joseph and then receiving their second anointing. Now, the interesting thing about the second anointing uh, in Joseph Smith's day is that no plural wife received their second anointing. It was always the first wife. And it seemed to be one way of the first wife having the status that the other wives didn't. It's almost a, a way of being reassured. I don't know how much good it did, but it was almost a way of reassuring them that, yes, there are these other wives, but you're the main wife. You're the one who's being uh, ordained uh, a a queen and priestess in the, in the next life, and you're, you've had your calling election made sure, that definitely gave them a different status. Brigham Young started uh, giving second anointings to plural wives after Joseph's death, but uh, prior to that, they weren't, and it seemed to be very calculated that, that the first wife had this special status, and obviously Emma, Joseph thought Emma needed that uh, to keep her on board with plural marriage. Yeah, I agree. And that's why I think the temple cannot be separated from polygamy. And I think especially when we go into Brigham Young's time period, he really uses the temple as a way to develop his own theology, like Adam God, which is a plural doctrine. Um, right. so the penalties, a blood atonement, which actually a lot of people don't realize was developed as a way to enforce polygamy. At least that's how we see it start to show up. Um, in the journal discourses when he's giving talks to the legis or the legislature at the time or sermons, it was saying, if you don't accept this principle, um, you're damned. And uh, one, along those lines, it's worth remembering that women were not getting their endowments unless they were married at this time. It wasn't an endowment for single women, um, which raises that that's something that the language change. I mean, the language change means a lot for that. Because contemporarily, there are single women going through the temple. And so these covenants that wives and plural wives were taking make no sense if you're a single woman about to go on a mission. And so I think that's something to consider, that this was a ceremony of ma that dealt with marriage. The only exception I noticed in the in Joseph Smith's day was Lucy Mack Smith, and she received her second anointing, and her husband had been dead. Um, so he, she, he got his by proxy with her. But she was the only case of that that I that I found. Uh, so they Joseph did. Smith. So they did second anointings by proxy, but not endowments. No, not until eighteen seventy seven, after the Saint George Temple opened. Yeah, there were baptisms for the dead. There were sealings for the dead, second anointings for the dead, but the endowment wasn't done for the dead for a long time. Can you talk more about that, Devery? Can you talk about what the what the if I were to go through the temple in the 1840s, what would I experience? And I would have to obviously be initiated. So we already talked about this. Joseph chose, this is another theory which I subscribe to, which is Joseph deliberately taught people um, the endowment that were only involved in his polygamy loop, right? People that knew of these sacred covenants. Yeah, and or and who like uh, like an exception was um, William 
law, but I'm not sure if Joseph really gauged his opposition at that point. Uh, he was part of the anointed quorum, and he wasn't, and law wasn't a polygamist, but Joseph may have felt he was supportive at first. But some people like um, Sidney Rigdon, and there were others that were never part of, didn't receive, some received this endowment, but didn't receive the second anointing too. And so there's a differentiation there uh, early on. Okay, this is a sidebar, but um, one thought that I had is um, for the women and and myself, maybe included, who likes the new wording much better and feels that it's a substantial enough change, not just to the way it's presented, but actually to what is really being promised that she would want to redo her own endowment and or ceiling. Um, What historical evidence could she cite to make a case that this is support for a practice, which as far as I know, doesn't ever happen today, which is redoing one's own endowment. In fact, I asked um, one person about this and said, well, would one route to doing that be to get oneself excommunicated? And then um, you would then have the opportunity to redo. And apparently um, we actually don't redo own endowments even in that case. No, it's just considered a restoration of temple blessings. And I'm not sure how those how that happens if it just... Um, you reach a certain status after your baptism and those, and you get permission to have those reinstated and it just kind of just happens. You're just considered reinstated. Kind of like if you've been disfellowshipped, you don't get, re- nothing happens other than you just get told, yeah, you're back, you know, no, no rebaptism. It just, you're just kind of informed that you're back in good standing. And I think that's how, how the restoration of temple blessings seems to work. But yeah, there's, there's no, I don't know that there's been a reinstated reendowment at any point. I th- first I thought maybe perhaps Joseph Fielding uh, in the 1840s had been reendowed, and I he was the one case that I heard or that I thought that may have happened. It turns out he was that didn't happen with him. Uh, he was making reference to changes that had been made, and he said, you know, when I when I first went through, it was such and such. He goes, now it's more perfect, it's better now. But he was just hearing that from others. He hadn't experienced it a second time. And this was before endowments for the dead were being done. But yeah, it's just, there's nothing like that performed and not aware of it having been. Does that answer your question, Cynthia? Yeah, that's too bad, but I appreciate the answer. So, Devery, um, explain. So, I was asking sort of what the early endowment would have looked like and how it's tied to polygamy. Well, I just think early on in Nauvoo, especially, this bringing people into a, to an elite group. And and making promises of of secrecy regarding it, you and these were the the insiders, and so there was that benefit. Whatever you think of the endowment itself as a saving ordinance or this and that, there was clearly a, a, the benefit of keeping this group. And I don't mean control in a negative way, but a way of controlling this elite group to not talk about things you don't want them to talk about outside of that group. And I think for the most part, it had that effect. There were a few dissenters, but I think during the during that, the, among the 65 people who were endowed in the red brick store and who got together for prayer circles, that group mostly stayed together. There were a few that descended uh, after Joseph Smith's death or prior, like the laws. But for the most part, it kind of did its job. I mean, as best it could. You have that many polygamists practicing polygamy in a small town like that. It's not going to stay secret. And then rumors are going to 
come along like they did. But for the most part, I think it, it kept that in check for almost in an amazing way when you think how long it was going on. Uh, I'm surprised when I walk around Nauvoo that something, a practice like that could be going on. And for the most part, outside of that group, it was just kept to some rumor, you know, until John C. Bennett came along. But even then, they seemed to squelch that until the Nauvoo Expositor came along and then it wasn't possible at that point. What about the garment? Because um, there are, and I, I would say a lot of fundamentalists believe that the garment was specifically developed as a way to identify polygamists. That is that is still um, a piece of information that floats around a theory. And, you know, when Joseph Smith was killed in Carthage, there's this whole discourse of him taking off his garments, asking others to take off his garments. John Taylor, I believe, said, you know, later on that it was a way to not be identified as a polygamist. Do you, is that true or is that folk doctrine? I've never heard that, although I have heard, you know, Brigham Young is one who, again, gave a talk years later after John Taylor would have still been alive at that point, but Willard Richards was dead and Joseph and Hiram were dead, but that Joseph had removed his garments and he gets shot. Willard Richards kept his on and he was spared. That's all I recall anyone talking about the garment and Joseph Smith removing his or, or anything like that. I've not heard it being uh, talked about as a way to identify polygamists, but there could be old quotes like that around because um, I'm sure they can find just about anything back then for all this, but uh, I've not heard that before. Christina, have you ever heard the, uh, that John Taylor was said to have perpetuated the idea that garments were to identify polygamists? I've never seen a source for that. I was just wondering if you've heard that. I haven't seen a source for it, but that's something I've heard that garments were a symbol of someone living the principle, but I don't know where the source for that is. I don't know where I've heard it, but if anyone has that out there, will you just put that in the comment section, please? Okay, so Devery, talk about, let's get into the development, um, how things change over time. Can you start, just list um, some major, I guess, changes or developments, whichever term you're more comfortable with? Well, early on, of course, we know that Brigham Young added more to the drama. He added the characters of Peter, James, and John to the endowment in the Nauvoo Temple. The Nauvoo Temple was interesting at the time because uh, the, the way the ceremony worked, and you know, today you see it being performed on film for the most part. There are still a couple of temples that do it live, but in either case, you watch someone else taking on the role of Adam and Eve and this and that. In Nauvoo, uh, everybody participated in the drama. Yeah, well, one of the weird things when I started hanging out with a lot of Mormons is they would all say a line from the temple in like a joking way. Like they would all be like, return and report, ha, ha, ha. And they would look at me as if they had this big secret and I didn't know what was happening. Everyone knows what's happening. Yeah. Mormons love to, especially ex-Mormons, love to like quote from the temple. The addition of the apostles is interesting because at the time Brigham Young had, you know, the secession crisis happened. Brigham Young became the president of the church and that was somewhat, you know, it was a somewhat controversial choice, but he was in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And so there was, there are some ideas that him adding Peter, James, and John to the endowment ceremony was his way of kind of elevating apostles and making them relevant to the contemporary saints as his own way of demonstrating that he had authority. And it wasn't just this random person that became the prophet of the church. That addition makes me a little bit sad, uh, only in that um, it makes even more stark the difference in ratio between sort of speaking parts for women and men. Mm -hmm. uh, right for 
um, commercial films, we have the Bechtel test, which is a sort of the lowest possible bar for female measuring female representation in film. There have to be at least two female characters. Um, they have to speak to each other. And they have to say something that is not just about a man. And of course, it doesn't mean that it's a female centered film or that it has positive representations of women. But you sort of think about those three rules. And gosh, you know, if if you're consuming media that can't even pass that lowest possible bar, um, it, it's disappointing. And um, and of course, in the temple drama, however it's presented, um, we have Adam, we have Peter, James, and John, we have um, many voices, and and then we have Eve as really the only female presence. And, and so she can't speak to another woman. I mean, it just doesn't pass on any level. And, um, and that's always made me a little sad. I think that that's important because we, you know, we talked about in the first part of this, why some women are uncomfortable because, you know, there are women that feel very empowered going to the temple. I, like I said, I was, I was not a natural feminist. So going through, I didn't notice any of the disparities that a lot of people notice until it was pointed out to me. And then when I, like, you know, it was pointed out to me, it was like, you can't unsee it. But I just got uncomfortable because of the, like, again, I, I was taught to be a literal believer. I believe that the Book of Mormon was a literal history. Like, uh, so I, to me, when I was learning about like American Indians in school, I was like, oh, the Lamanites, you know? And so going through the temple, I literally believed for a decade of my life as a young mom and wife that if I didn't remember these things, these certain handshakes and symbols and wording, that I wouldn't get in the celestial kingdom. And so I would get this like OCD anxiety about it. And I'm left-handed too. And so when you go to the temple, you you do some like hand signals and stuff with right hand, left hand, things like that. And I was also teaching preschool at the time where you have to teach little kids how to use right and left hand and you mirror and you do it backwards. So I was so screwed up about it. And I would develop this anxiety. I remember I had a panic attack in the in the dressing room of the temple one time. And I, and I just thought I'm letting Satan get to me, you know, like he's trying to prevent me from doing this. And my husband and I, we would go to the temple once a week for the first two years of our marriage. And I just started getting so panicky, but I couldn't articulate why. And now that, you know, I've read a lot of feminist critiques on it and things like that. I'm like, Oh, this is why, because I was doing things that made me uncomfortable. I just didn't understand them. I think what's hard about that from, again, an outside perspective, I don't know what it feels like to go to the temple. I don't know what it feels like to feel any kind of um, hurt or sadness about it. But I think what's so hard from an outsider looking in is that there's ways that Mormonism could include women. You know, there's a doctrine of heavenly mother that could be in the temple, like she could be there. And, you know, if she's too sacred to talk about colloquially or casually, like the temple would be the ideal place to talk about her. And so there's a way that that could happen. And so I think that's something that is frustrating from an outsider, especially an outsider that comes from a tradition that has high Mariology and has 
uh, saints that are women is that there's ways that it could be happening um, and that that dialogue could be positive for women. And it's just not. There's the, um, so the temple that was not the temple that I was married in, but the temple that I went to every temple visit because it was close to my home was in San Diego um, in my early marriage. And the, just the way that the room is laid out there, um, there are two chairs at the front where um, a man and a woman sit who are the, the temple workers um, who are visible throughout the ceremony. And so one of the chairs, um, the man who plays a role representing Peter at various times sits in, and then and then there's a woman sitting on the other chair kind of in front of their respective gender halves of the room. Mm-hmm. And I loved that image. And it took me a while to realize that that wasn't a part of how the room was laid out at every temple, because I just assumed that that was meant to be sort of visually symbolically mm-hmm. suggestive of a heavenly mother and heavenly father dual presence sort of overseeing their children which is such great imagery and it would be so easy to do in every temple and to be a little you know explicit somehow that that's what it is i've heard a few women at the salt lake temple um talk about how in the celestial room there's a statue a lot of people think it's eve um but a lot of mormon feminists that i'm friends with have commented that nope that's our heavenly mother and they they talk about that pretty positively, that that's something in the temple that they've really enjoyed seeing when they're in the celestial room. So, Devery, you were talking about Peter, James, and John. Sorry, we've gotten a little sidebar, but what did you want to say more about that? Oh, well, I was just saying, um, you know, Peter, James, and John were really the first addition that I could document uh, with the Nauvoo temple experience, or the first changes to the endowment. And in Nauvoo, people acted out their parts. Uh, instead of everybody seeing a witness couple portray Adam and Eve, people were Adam and Eve. They brought in live shrubbery, for example, in the, both the Nauvoo temple and the, in the red brick store. And when Adam and Eve discover their nakedness, the, everybody in the congregation hides behind the shrubbery. And William Phelps, who played Satan, would actually crawl on his belly as a, like a serpent, like a snake. And so there was all this drama and flavor to the Nauvoo Temple. And it took like six hours to get through an endowment session. So I think everybody was glad they didn't do it for the dead back then because you only had to go through once and never had to do it again. You know, and then there's, there's just lots of evolution, obviously, over the years. Uh, I think it's fascinating to see when it switched from live to film in the 50s when Gordon B. Hinckley over the Temple Committee began to see that as a way to streamline things and to answer the question of foreign language issues. And so uh, that's a fascinating story in itself. So is that one of the biggest changes? Uh, That and after Joseph Smith's death, of course, there was uh, an oath that was put in uh, known as the Oath of Vengeance, basically asking God, I can't remember the wording of it now, but it basically was, you know, Missouri, kind of an Oath of Vengeance against Missouri and the people of Missouri for the deaths, for the murders of Joseph and Hiram Smith. And that stayed in the temple until I think the 1920s. And and that one had a long life. George Reynolds, uh, or I'm sorry, George Richards, uh, in the 1920s began the most serious changes, really. And he was Salt Lake Temple president. He was one of the 12 apostles. 
but he was also president of the Salt Lake Temple, and he felt that he, being president over the main temple in the church, which being at church headquarters, I think they just saw the Salt Lake Temple as standing out. He felt he had really the right to receive inspiration about the temple, and he made a list of changes that he wanted the brethren to change, and um, they pretty much did them all, or authorized them all, and he put those new ones in place, and then within a year, came up with several more that he wanted to change. And so, at least in this case, I think a lot of cases, the changes aren't initiated by the first presidency. In this case, George Reynolds came, or George Richards came to them and said, I think these things need to be done away with or modified or changed. And they basically said, well, give us a list. And they, he did, and they said, fine. Where can we and find I think that list? Is the, do you cite that list in your book? Yeah. In George uh, Richards' diaries, he records all this in his diaries. He'll say, I met with the brethren today. One of the things that he, um, yeah, this is all in the book. And it's a great resource for those diaries because his diaries aren't available. At least they're not available in full. I think they've been, they're redacted if they are available at all now. But these transcripts were made long before his diary became uh, restricted. And so that's very important stuff to see this stuff happening in the 20s and 30s. And um, one of the big things for him, too, was the second anointing. In Joseph Smith's day, second anointing was considered a vital ordinance that it was essential to salvation. And it just kind of followed uh, the endowment. Uh, those who were faithful and active and, and were going and receiving their own endowment were pretty much given the second anointing as well. And over the first you know, several decades of the church, there were tens of thousands of second anointings that had been performed. But for whatever reason, that ordinance just kind of dropped off and almost, and, and George. I have Richardson a theory. Very, I have a theory about it. If you want to hear it, I think it's related sure. to polygamy because some of the people don't know this, but if you've been following the podcast, um, the fundamentalists that have authority have a legitimate, what I consider to be a legitimate claim to authority. They have a John Taylor revelation. They have receipts. Right. Um, but also some people will say, well, they were excommunicated or kicked out of the church. But the early, all, uh, all of the early leaders of the Council of Friends had their second anointings. And the second anointing makes your calling an election sure. And second, you know, an excommunication doesn't really mean anything when you've been anointed with a second anointing. So I wonder if it just gave too much power to people. I agree with Lindsay, especially my favorite prophet, Mormon prophet, Joseph Musser, got his, received his second anointing when he was 27 years old. Fancy times. And he also happened to be a seven in, he also happened to be a 70. So and that's, Joseph hard, that's hard to parse known, out. He's known for sneaking out the endowment, by the he way. He did sneak out the endowment. And also there was no ritual done to remove his priesthood. He never had his priesthood revoked. So, and he, it was super wishy-washy on him getting excommunicated. Um, he had two disciplinary councils. They did, it was, and so I tend to agree with that theory, but I wanted to comment real quick on removals and kind of a more, I don't want to say apologetic, but um, kind of looking at removals as like, I'm apologetic. Uh, the Oath of Vengeance, particularly one of the interesting things about the Oath of Vengeance is in the oath, it specifically, you know, it tells you to teach your children this oath. But it also tells you to teach them to the third and fourth generation, and then the oath is gone. So I think there's a way to look at these oaths that some of, like, especially the oath of vengeance, maybe not particularly being 
permanent to the temple, that there is a loophole for certain things not being completely fixed. Like a shelf life, things, you mean? Yeah, and things being able to change. Well, and I do think, I don't think Brigham Young in any way wanted to ever remove the Oath of Vengeance. I don't think Brigham Young wanted to change anything that he established. But the way it's worded allows for potential loopholes. Can I just read the Oath of Vengeance really quick? Because I do have the wording. Yeah. It says, you and each of you do covenant and promise that you will pray and never cease to pray to Almighty God to avenge the blood of the prophets upon this nation and that you will teach the same to your children and to your children's children unto the third and fourth generation. That's the actual oath. And then Brigham Young really does tie this into blood atonement. And he really believed that it was inevitable that Joseph Smith Smith's actual blood and the blood of all martyrs of faith would be atoned for in quote their his own due time and under he used terms like under the altar of God crying to God day and night for vengeance I mean vengeance was really part of this frontier doctrine I think and one thing too the oath of vengeance received a lot of attention during the Reed Smoot hearings when Joseph F Smith was on the the witness stand and it was kind of embarrassing to have that and try to explain it away. And I think that was one reason too. I mean, it didn't, it wasn't removed right away, but like all these things, when there's this scrutiny and it's, and we're kind of embarrassed as a church over things like this within the next decade or so or two, sometimes longer, we make a change. And I think in 1990, I was, I was endowed prior to 1990. So I saw the pre 1990 endowment. And I remember in 1983, a movie called The Godmakers was making its rounds in 1983. It was played in churches, evangelical churches all over the country. And they portrayed the endowment ceremony in that. They talked about, you know, some of the harsher parts, the, the penalties and that type of thing. And within a few years, those were all removed. And I remember David Berger gave a very good, wrote a very good article on the history of the Temple Endowment for Dialogue and made you know suggestions about things that could be done away with in 1987. By 1990, those things were gone. And I think the Oath of Vengeance, I think, and it, it, and it may well have had, you know, was just destined for a, a shelf life that was about to expire. But when these things are made public and embarrass the church, that's very often a sign that changes around the corner and will come. And, and we've seen that a few times with, with the temple. It's not initiated by George Richards. Sometimes just the church at large will write and say, I'm not comfortable with this, or we'll get embarrassed by a film. And I think... Um, Every why George I, Richards, though? Like, what was his thing? He just, as president of the Salt Lake Temple, he was he was just, he would lose sleep over some of the stuff, especially over the second anointing. He approached the brethren and said, listen, in the last, I can't remember how many years, decade or so, or 14 years, we've, we've only done eight second anointings. And the decades prior to that, we had done thousands. And he said, I can't believe the Lord is pleased with us about this. And so almost to appease him, the brethren said, fine, we'll start doing it again. And so it was done on a limited scale after that. Um, general authorities tech tended to be received their second anointings, general authorities and their wives and others. Uh, but it's never reached the level that it did back then, and it's no longer considered essential to salvation. So it's really become a whole. It's the ordinance probably very much the same, but its purpose, meaning, and all of that has changed dramatically. Lindsay, I'm curious what you think or anyone would be the very, very faithful LDS understanding of why changes have, as Devery just went over, coincided with things that when they became public were embarrassing. I personally, you know, don't feel any 
um, distress over there being a connection there. But I can imagine some people would and that you could sort of go different ways with that. One would be, well, the original way is the right one, but the public pressure sort of forced our hand, but that that's the only reason it changed. And if it weren't for the public, it would still be that way. And maybe it will go back that way. Okay, uh, but so I could imagine other faithful responses being more sort of how I feel about it, which is kind of glad we changed that anyway. And, and whatever the circumstances that were, that were sort of the proximate cause precipitating that is, is not faith challenging anyway. Again, I think it, it depends on how you were taught to think about religion. I mean, I, I tend to see, you know, I know a lot of people who grew up with copies of Sun, Sun, and Dialogue on their table, and they were faithful Mormons. It seems that those people are easier, um, deal easier, more easily with this idea of, like, change and development because they they understand that not everything is literal. If you're like me and, and you taught everything was literal... Then and you and you hear quotes like the gospels on changing it will never change. That's kind of a big bucket of cold water when you're like, wait, wait, what? We used to do an oath of vengeance. What? Um, I thought that why am I having to memorize this to get into heaven if it if it changes? That's one way of thinking about it. I, I think Mormon fundamentalists believe that they are re- restoring the restoration from the LDS Church. They're bringing it back to how Joseph saw it, and, and that is a theme that is constant in Mormon right Mormonism. Right, like everybody thinks that they're interpreting like maybe the LDS leaders have it have it off and so they have to restore what Joseph restored and this is what he meant and that's the whole you know snufferite movement right they believe that the LDS church has kind of gotten off course with what Joseph wanted and so their interpretation is what they believe Joseph really wanted whereas some people read old texts from Brigham Young and say well actually this is what the restoration was supposed to look like does that make sense yeah I saw someone post on Facebook I think um, a faithful woman who mentioned that, and I think this is, you know, this goes back to having just so many different ideas and opinions about things in the temple, but no official statement. Um, she had a temple worker tell her in the dressing room that the reason the temple changed is because God saw that current LDS people weren't ready to live the true law because they were grumbling. And I like those, I, that is a very faithful response to temple changes, but that's also a damaging response to look at someone who's having a hard time and tell them that. Yeah, because there's no going back. We're not going to revert back to that stuff. And I think there's also something to be shit said about just the shot in the arm that change does, kind of this rejuvenation that follows and the excitement. And I think uh, if we didn't change, I mean, I think there's we had to address some very problematic areas of the temple I mean, there's no question in fact after the changes were made i it's funny i i was talking to a friend of mine i said uh, in washington and i said you know did you hear the news about the change in the temple and he said no i haven't heard anything yet and i started to explain and i said yeah and they've gotten rid of most of the the sexist stuff and he said what sexist stuff <laughs> and um and i said you're kidding me <laughs> and i explained few and he goes huh yeah i never really thought about that and i'm and so they will see i I don't know how people like that will the change happening they'll see but i don't i think a lot of people aren't are just going to be clueless as to they're not it's not even going to enter their head that there were 
any reasons for it, that any parts were offensive or anything like that. But, but 1990, you know, we got rid of the penalties. We got rid of the minister. Uh, there were some offensive things there about how we, you know, taught that, uh, you know, ministers, non-Mormon ministers were hirelings of Satan, just kind of his dupes. And, um, and a little bit of wording changed with the, back then the women promised, men promised, uh, and I was just noticing this prior to 1990, uh, men promised to obey the law of God and keep his commandments it's women by his counsel and righteousness. In 1990, that changed to uh, for women to keep the law of the Lord and hearken to your husband in uh, as he hearkens to the Father. So there was no mention of God at all prior to 1990. And in 1990, it was changed. Women obeyed the law of God, but also hearken to your husbands. And I remember some women, I know one of the daughters of Jean England, I can't remember which one, I think it may be Rebecca, Talk about how much more empowered she felt as a woman with that change. I thought, wow, 1990, weren't we ready at that point to get rid of all the stuff we got rid of this time around? 1990 wasn't that long ago. I remember. So I was one of these households that um, my parents were very faithful. You know, my mom was a seminary teacher, but we also had copies of Dialogue and Sunstone sitting around. And, um, and so even though I would have been, uh, let's see, 11 when those changes happened i remember hearing that they had changed and then my impression of the change was there had been something where women are sort of bound to obey their husbands and that's gone now and so that was what i was expecting and so the first time i went to the temple in um the year 2000 I I felt a little betrayed or which uh, whiplash about this thing that I'd sort of read, you know, in like the LA Times, the New York Times kind of venues that had been fixed um, seemed to me to still be there. And I understand that it changed quite a bit, but, um, but the fact that some of that imbalance lingered to me was, was came as a surprise. And yeah. Cynthia, I want to talk about something, that, the question that you just asked, because I've been thinking about it as we've been talking. And I actually, thinking about my own anxiety, I you ask why people would be embarrassed or like why changes would be scandalous, because I agree. Like, I actually think development is not only natural and inevitable, but usually healthy. But for someone like me who really believed, and I think, it, I don't think this is an unfair or unique interpretation that the reason why we were learning these things is so we could learn how to get into heaven, that these were important for us to get into heaven. And so I spent all this time obsessing over using the right hand, the left hand. Do I have my fingers right? And if it was so important to do that, and um, it was important enough for, you know, little old ladies to sweetly come and correct my fingers if it was wrong, then if we were to change it, what was all of that worry for? Does it even matter? Is it even exact? Is it even literal? And I think that that's why people, especially, you know, the post-Mormon and ex-Mormon community feel so upset or why people, this can launch a faith crisis because it's like, well, what's the point? What are we even doing all of this stuff for if it's not what they say it is? Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think this would be a good time actually to just sort of answer my own question, at least as far as how the church is framing this, um, in the notice that they put in the newsroom, they uh, they spoke to this idea of 
normalizing change. They wrote, with the restoration of the gospel in these latter days, temple worship has also been restored to bless the lives of people across the world and on the other side of the veil as well. Over these many centuries, details associated with temple work have been adjusted periodically, including language, methods of construction, communication, and record keeping. Prophets have taught that there will be no end to such adjustments as directed by the Lord to his servants. So to me, it sounds like they're very much framing this as part of an ongoing perfecting an ongoing rolling out of restoration and not a fleeing from due to outside pressure or anything like that. Yeah. And I think that that is an actual health, an actual healthy interpretation, because I do think that there is this brittleness in literal belief. And that's why it's disappointing when I see BYU scholars or something argue for like a literal interpretation of scripture, because I think it's a missed opportunity to teach people how to think like Again, people will ask me all the time, do you believe that the Book of Mormon is historical? No, absolutely not. But if it is or isn't, that's not why the scriptures are valuable, right? Like, I I don't need a history book. I don't need a history book. I need a way to learn about and connect with the divine. And so I think, you know, Terrell Given says this in the PBS documentary, The Mormons, that the temple is a vehicle to communing with the divine. And I wish I would have understood that in a symbolic way. But as a 19-year-old girl, I just had no reference for that. Okay. So, Devery, what other changes? You talked about in the 1990s. This is what everyone's upset about Mitt Romney for because he took this blood oath where you would mimic slitting your throat, right? Is that what the oath was? That was one of them. Yeah. There were three... known as penalties. When were the penalties put in? Because my understanding was they weren't part of the original and then they were added. Was that a Brigham Young thing? So you would take a covenant and then you would have it's a penalty. No, for sure, because we don't have anything written for not for uh, Nauvoo. But William Clayton makes reference, I believe, to, and then I have to look this up again and refresh my memory, but William Clayton talks about those. And so they would have been part of Nauvoo. Now, whether they were part of the anointed quorum prior to the temple or if it was part of the temple, but it was part of the Nauvoo endowment. William Clayton actually went into some detail in his diary about the endowment and does make reference to signs, tokens, and penalties. So it was there for part of it, whether from the beginning, can't really say. So, And just to explain to outsiders, you'd make a covenant, and if you broke that covenant, there would be a penalty attached, right? Well, it was a way of saying rather rather than break the covenant, uh, I would uh, allow this to happen to me, meaning that not so much, not that the church would come and do something to you for breaking it, but that you wouldn't break it under pressure from an outsider. Let's say a non-Mormon said, tell me what happens in there or I'll kill you, that you would give your life before you'd reveal that. So even though the word penalty is used, which is, you know, implies it's a punishment for having revealed it, you're basically saying rather than reveal it, I would let someone take my life. So it was your way of saying you'll guard that secret. And, and again, this is what Cynthia was talking about in the first part of this episode, which is language, the squishiness of language, to use her word, is so interesting because we have historical examples of people literally doing that, right? Blood atonement was actually a real thing. On what level it was practiced is um, still controversial and debatable. In my opinion, it was very, very very minimal, but it, you had rogue people like Bishop John Snow in... Um, 
Jon Snow. Bishop Snow. Is it Jon Snow? Is that a Game of Thrones thing? That's Game of Thrones. Bishop <laughs> Snow in southern Utah in Manti uh, was living a Game of Thrones life by castrating young boys and blood atoning people. You, you know, and then John D. Lee was said to talk, he talked a lot about the Oath of Vengeance and things like that. And, you know, the Joseph T. Ball was, had, he was a black man that was accused of dating white women, but really um, he was lynched in Salt Lake City and the garment marks were carved into his skin. So it's not like we can't say that this didn't occur as a result of this language, right? Right. And I think the key is these are rogue incidents, which it makes you have to, you know, begs the question, you know, if we have a system set up that kind of spurs on these crazy people, is there something wrong with the system? <laughs> and so I think, uh, took a while but uh eliminating those i think is clear you know at least helps to clear some of that up you know it does by having a system where there's implied violence or symbolic violence that's just waiting for a crazy person to act you know so yeah and and that's the thing that's why i get frustrated with the argument like oh well they didn't really mean it well then why include it at all (laughs) right like so that's why to cynthia and that was part of the masonic thing too i think was carried over so it's one of those things that we put it into place just like the blacks and the priesthood issue and just kind of leave it there for decades before we it dawns on us that, you know, maybe this isn't right or let's let's dig a little deeper to see if this is really necessary. And we're good at change, but we're good at resisting it, too. And those two work together, you know, or at least the way we do it. We we change after we resisted it forever. We should learn a lesson by now that we don't need to resist <laughs> because it just gets us into trouble. So. <laughs> that might be the best 30 second summary of Mormon culture and theology and doctrine that I've ever heard. And really quick, it wasn't Jon Snow. It was Warren Snow. His name was Warren. And um, yeah, Cynthia, this speaks to why change is good, though. Like, I'm glad that I didn't take a blood oath. That probably would have freaked me out in the temple. So we should be happy about that. Devery, any other big changes? We're, we're getting a little late. Long in the tooth here, so. Well, I think you know, there are changes to the temple itself, then there were changes as far as to the rules of who can, can get in. And that's where women have also suffered a lot over the years. You know, whether women who were single or married to non-Mormon or unendowed Mormon husbands, whether they can go receive their endowments or not. And that went back and forth a few times over the years and wasn't changed, and hopefully permanently now. Again, this is one I don't think we could ever go back now. But uh, I don't think they'd even attempt it. But since 1986, women have been able to, to who are married to non-Mormons and unendowed Mormons can get their endowments, requires permission from the spouse. But men have to get that same permission if they're married to a non-Mormon now. So that's one of the good changes. But for a long time, it went back and forth. The brethren thought if a woman's married to a non-Mormon man, he's going to make her tell what happens in the temple. I guess they didn't see that same danger, or at least maybe a man would be more dominant if a non-member wife asked what happens he's going to say none of your business but that a wife would give in i think that was what their big fear was and so that one went back and forth a few times and so it was disappointing just like women who were once able to give blessings you know lay on hands uh that was a gift taken away and so for women being able to go to the temple whether they are married to a mormon or not and have that taken away um that's just something as a culture you just don't recover from. And inevitably, it's going to change back, but it took a long time. It wasn't until 1986. So how women were uh, treated as far as how can they go, can they not? Uh, Same with blacks. David O. McKay kind of went back and forth on some things, started allowing 
baptisms for the dead, discouraged adoptions by white people of black children because they couldn't be sealed. But then once they did adopt them, he gave some exceptions. And so there were some of these rules that just kind of were hit and miss or came along without any official backing as far as in, in written in stone. And so they were always a judgment call. Some of them with the women's issues, they were, it was across the board. I remember in the early eighties, I asked uh, Devere Harris, who was president of the Idaho Falls Temple, because my mom wanted to go through receiver endowment. My dad wasn't active at all. And, uh, and that was their issue. And I asked him, I said, my mom wants to receive her endowments. Is this possible for her? And his exact words to me were, no way. The brethren said, women who are married to non-member husbands don't need to be endowed. They can get it in the next life or whatever. So that just, he said, no way. <laughs> I remember those exact words, no way. And then it was in a couple of years, uh, they changed it. And I think this all came on the heels of the Equal Rights Amendment battles of the early 80s. Women being able to pray in sacrament meeting came along you know, in the 76, and it was after some, you know, equality issues that were buzzing about and that. And I think they see it as a time to reflect and say, let's reevaluate this. Is there doctrine involved here? Is it just a policy with the temple? Is the crux of the thing going to remain the same? And I think they really think these things out. One of the things I did learn in compiling the temple book was that, you know, they're resistant to change, but they'll do it because they want to keep the temple relevant to the members. We talk about bringing the temple to the people. That's one way we do it. We don't just do it through a physical building and making it in close proximity where people live. It's also keeping what goes on inside relevant. And if you have to make changes, that's what you got to do. And, and, and they fret about this stuff. They don't do this lightly. In, in my temple book, I realized that's the last area they're going to do it lightly, but they're always willing. And then in the back of their mind is always... How do we keep this relevant to the people? So they'll change garments from going down to your ankles to above the knee. They'll, they'll create two-piece garments uh, so you're not embarrassed if you're going swimming in the locker room. All these things, you know, and, and then they ask themselves continuously, does this really change the doctor? And but every, sometimes it seems like it does. It's almost like you're talking about these sacred ordinances as if they were like a, and I'm not saying this to be sarcastic, as if it were like a boardroom development of what's the market, what's the product, how are we going to stay relevant? I mean, I was taught over and over and over, we don't care what is relevant. We don't care what the world does. We do not change because of society. But I think history tells us a different story. Oh, yeah. that's That narrative that we've tried to frame, you can look at it in the temple. You can look at it in any number of ways. And that's where we're wrong. We're wrong in saying we don't do those things. <laughs> I think we're right to do them. We're wrong in saying we don't. And I think we can defend doing them. We can't defend saying we don't. And that's where we that's that's the that's where we're wrong. Yeah. That's a that's a great way to say it. That is where we are wrong. And that's where I think, you know, it's not just the the general membership likes there are leaders that have perpetuated this idea that the gospel is unchanging, that it, you know, that society is the the is the thing that changes, but we don't. And that's where we're wrong. Does anyone have any closing thoughts as we, as we wrap up tonight? Do you guys want to kind of go around and give us your closing thoughts? I just think that, you know, basically what I just said, I, in doing this temple book, I realized, you know, it hit me more than ever how much the temple meant to the presiding brethren. They would lose sleep over a lot of these issues and, they were fearful of making change and change under pressure. In the end, if they feel that they've taken that to the Lord and he says, yeah, that's fine. They see the 
they see it as in the ultimately revelation that does it. And so I think in their minds, they're fine. One of the things that Wilford Woodruff, one of the, I think it was Wilford Woodruff, actually, no, I think it may have been Joseph F. Smith, now I think about it, said that, um, you know, people didn't like the gar- style of the garment and that they were like pinning them up and doing all this stuff. And he said, people need to realize that the garment design was revealed from heaven and we can't change it. Well, it wasn't long after that that they did make change. And so I think in their mind, they see the pressures as as kind of a thing that prompts uh, looking into change. But in the end, they, they feel confident that God okayed the change. So unauthorized uh, change would be if they just made the change without doing all of that. And I think I honestly believe that they're sincere in in coming away feeling that's how it's all done ultimately. If it's really messy in getting to that process, that's fine. Uh, but they, they see in the end that God put a stamp of approval on it. And I think it, it adds, it, it makes us look at Revelation, you know, how the church should approach how we teach about Revelation. Is God leading the church or is he mainly a confirmer of decisions others make? And I don't, or is he proactively leading? Looks like in a lot of cases he's not. He's uh, there to say yes or no to a lot of blood, sweat, and tear decisions that others make. But to say he's actively leading doesn't look like that's his job. <laughs> and I think the temple is the best example of that because so much of this is documented. And if it's going to can happen with the temple, which seems like the most sacred thing, people are battling out ideas and saying yes or no to this or looking at trends in society. That just, to me, answers a lot of questions about how we approach things in other areas as well. So I think there's a lot to be learned about exploring temples and changes and how they come about and all of that. I think it's fascinating to study it. And I think it teaches us a lot. Closing thoughts from Cynthia? So I've articulated a lot of thoughts about the things that I found uncomfortable about the temple or um, in the past and that remain. So maybe just in closing, I'll say that I do like it. I like the, uh, I like that it's part of our religion. I like that we have ritual and I like how it asks us to to really embody things and to do movements and and some of that has been in some locations minimized over time we don't always physically change rooms when going from terrestrial world and so on but but to the extent that we still do i personally find that a very meaningful spiritual practice i i <laughs> probably have the most unpopular opinion that I have is that I actually miss the naked version of the initiatory. Um, I know that it just doesn't sound good to outsiders just to have that word involved in anything at all. But I liked how, how material, how physical, how concrete it was that I was being told that I was being washed preparatory to anointing and that that my body was actually involved. It wasn't enough water to really be a cleaning, but um, but I liked how how literal and concrete that experience was, and um, and so I do like it. I just want to play off what Cynthia said that I think you know, the LDS church, Mormonism in general, is a product of the Reformation, which largely tried to get rid of icons and imagery and bodily worship. 
And the last real remainder of that in Mormonism is the temple. And I think there's something really valuable to ritual. People have a lot of um, critiques and criticism of temple worship. But I think there's something really valuable to moving your body in a worship setting and participating in rituals and participating in repetitious rituals. Um, It does something to your brain. It does something with your body that connects to your psyche. It makes sense to do in religious settings. And so I think that's really important. And at the same time, those rituals advance. You know, the oldest religions we have are religions that have adapted and changed and even ones that have claimed to be never changing. And so I think it's really important that the church is maintaining this teaching that they consider to be ancient, but at the same time, making it so people feel comfortable and people feel welcome. Uh, And so I consider the temple changes to be a positive for the most part. I think there's some that don't go quite far enough, but I'm really happy that the church is willing to make changes toward hopefully inclusivity. Well, and my closing thought is I don't like the temple. Uh, I love the history of the temple. I I actually love the symbolism of the temple. I don't enjoy the temple experience. And that's why I'm a celestial Mormon. I've said that before. I'm not celestial material. Uh, I am not a temple going Mormon anymore. And and I'm comfortable with that. But I do I do appreciate uh, its place and its role in Mormonism. I think that it's very important to Mormonism. And I, and I think it's beautiful. And I actually, I still go to Temple Square and sit often in front of the temple um, as sort of my way to commune, because it, to me, it's very symbolic as that I can't go in. And to me, it's, there's a sacredness in that as well. So especially since I, you know, when Mar- got married there and things like that. Anyway, I just want to thank you all for coming and being on these two episodes. You guys are fantastic. Thanks, Lindsay. Thank you. It's great to be part of it. And we'll link to uh, Cynthia's blog post, uh, Devery's book, and then Christine and I did a podcast on with Sunstone about so, some of the changes. And I like what John Larson says in that. He says, you know, there's something gained and there's something lost in the changes. And it's some of the things that are lost are probably needed to be lost, but it's also hard too, right? Because those are the things that sacrifice brings forth the blessings of heaven, right? We're bound together in Mormonism by this really rugged frontier, hard religion. And so it'll be interesting to see how the temple changes and develops over time. But everyone, thanks for listening and we'll see you next episode. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.